Good morning. Good morning. There it is. Okay. I know you guys are just still waking up, and uh, that's okay. I, uh, I'm excited to get to preach uh, for you today. My name is Tim Klopfenstein. I am the worship pastor here at Church of the Creek. And uh, Tyler's out today, and he asked me to fill in for him, and I am just really excited for the word that God has given me uh, for you today. And uh, I grew up uh, partially in Southern California. I, I lived in Oceanside, California for about five years. It's about 50 minutes north or so, 45 to 50 minutes north of San Diego, uh, just so you kind of have a picture of that. So it was definitely Southern California, and uh, I grew up during the 90s, and so 90s, Southern California equals skateboarding. <laughs> lots and lots and lots of skateboarders. And uh, it was a big deal back then, if you were ever there uh, or if you remember it. I think skateboarding was a big deal for the 90s in general, but uh, I think specifically in Southern California, there was just a lot of places to do that. It's relatively flat, but there's still some, some hills. It was, it was good. And uh, my mom and I used to take my brother... My mom used to take my brother and I, sorry, uh, to the Carlsbad Skate Park, which was about 15 minutes away from where we lived. And uh, I remember I would go there and there would just be skateboards and bikes and rollerblades just everywhere. It was always packed out. And I was a small child. I was a small kid. And so uh, it, it was a little intimidating sometimes. I was about this high. And sorry, this high for all of you over there. About this high. And uh, I had spiky hair. And my helmet was way too big for me, so it was flopping around all over the place. I'd have my elbow pads and my knee pads. I looked really cool in those. And uh, probably some sort of shorts that were above the knee, definitely above the knee, and had some kind of horrible 90s pastel color with stripes, if you know what I'm talking about. It was definitely the 90s. And uh, there was a few times that my brother would teach me to skateboard. And we didn't really get along that well, my brother and I, to be honest with you. But we could connect over skateboarding. That was something that we both thought was kind of cool and uh, we both liked. He was way better than I was, and he was about five years older than me, so uh, and that's, that's just how it worked. Uh, but I remember one time, uh, you know, a quarter pipe, it's like you think of like a pipe, okay, a circle, quarter of a pipe, right? Just like a little ramp like that. Uh, when you go into a quarter pipe on a skateboard, it's called dropping in. And so you would like position your board on the edge of it like this, and you would go down on it and go down the ramp, and you'd get some speed, and it helps you do other things and stuff like that. Well, I remember one time he was teaching me how to drop in on a quarter pipe, and he said, Timmy, no one calls me Timmy except for my sister and my brother now, <laughs> uh, Timmy, if you don't want to fall flat on your back, you need to lean forward when you're going down the ramp. Have any of you ever tried this? That is not what your body wants you to do. <laughs> you know, you go, to, you go to go, and you go, I'm falling, and you want to lean back. That's, that's what your body tells you to do is to lean back. It's totally counterintuitive to lean forward. You're thinking, I'm going to fall on my face. And I'm going to skim my face across that concrete and it's not going to be pretty. And I don't want to do that. So I heard his advice. I contemplated his advice. And then I just thoroughly dismissed his advice. And I went, okay, whatever, I got this. And so I went to go drop in. Can you guess what happened? Go to lean forward. I lean back and fall flat on my back. Wind knocked out of me for a good while, couldn't breathe, gasping for breath, and it wasn't pretty. And then I did it again, and then I did it again, and then I did it again. And I honestly don't know how many times I did it. Uh, I think I probably lost a few brain cells while I, my brain was deprived of oxygen for a couple minutes. 
Uh, but I just kept trying it and trying and trying it. My poor mother, <laughs> she's standing by like, oh, he just keeps trying it. <laughs> she, uh, she wasn't all that helpful in that particular moment. But I remember eventually I thought, you know what? I'm going to try it. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to trust him, which is a big deal for me. <laughs> I, I chose to trust him and, and, and to, to take his advice. So I remember, again, I got back up on the skateboard at the top of the quarter pipe. I'm about to drop in. And it was like a three-foot pipe, but, like, it felt like a thousand feet. You know, I'm looking at it, I'm like, that is, I'm going to die, you know. <laughs> and I take a deep breath. I close my eyes, which is a good idea if you're ever doing extreme sports. Just close your eyes the whole time until it's over, right? So you get to the top, close your eyes, deep breath, and I go for the drop. I lean forward, and then to my surprise, I open up, and I'm going right towards another quarter pipe that's going up this time, and everything just kind of blacks out from there in my memory. I don't remember a whole lot else other than that. But the point is, sometimes it's hard to hold on to what's actually true, isn't it? Even if we know it, even if we can logically think through it and think, that sounds like the truth, but it's counterintuitive, and it doesn't seem to logically make sense, actually, when we look at how things really work. It can seem too good to be true. Maybe we're just afraid of getting the wind knocked out of us again. Whatever the reason, I believe that God wants us to face doubts, fears, questions, things like that, that we, that we just can't seem to hold on to the truth. He wants us to face that head-on, because he has so much in store for us. And it requires us to trust his authority and his word, without which we'll never be able to let our souls actually rest or to have the desires of his heart for us. The rest that can only come in the comfort of the words of our loving God. So what we're going to do today, we're going to continue our study in Hebrews this morning and see what God has to say about this. Because honestly, I believe that this message today will give you the courage to take the plunge and to lean forward in those moments where God has something more and it just doesn't feel quite intuitively true, but it is. So we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 4. We've read through 1 through 3 already. Can you believe it? And we're picking up in chapter 4. And in books like this, the context is just so important to understand where we are. So what we've done so far is we've read through chapters 1 through 3, and what really the author of Hebrews is doing is he's teaching us why Jesus is supreme, his supremacy over all things and all people. He is the ultimate. He is God himself, and he's above all these other things. He was more than just a man, and he, he is God. That's what he's trying to show. And so first he says he's greater than the angels, and we talked about that a few weeks ago. And then uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've, we've broken apart chapters 2 and 3 where he talks about how Jesus is greater than Moses. You know, he gives analogies like the builder of the house is more important than the house itself. He's talking about the house of Israel that God put together. He said God, God himself is greater than the house itself. And he also uh, talks about how Moses was a servant in God's house, but Jesus is the son in God's house. That's a big deal also, right? That's the, that, that gives him a greater authority. That puts him higher than the servant in the house. So things like that. And, and, and this, this idea, specifically the author breaking down how Jesus is, is greater than Moses, is, is vitally important to what we're going to talk about today. And we'll see why in a little bit here as we read through chapter 4. But before that, the author of Hebrews starts, Hebrews starts to go off on what seems like a tangent at the beginning of chapter 4. He's talking about like God's rest 
And uh, it is important and it is uh, relevant, but it doesn't necessarily feel like that at first. So uh, Hebrews chapter 4, I'm just going to read that real quick here. Of course, I pulled out my, my note here, so hang on. Oh, there we go. Okay, Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it will be up on the screen for you as well. Verse 1 says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Let's pause for a second. What, who is he talking about? Who is they in this passage? Let's read ver, chat, uh, verse 2 again. It says, for the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So it's clearly talking about this other people, this, this other group. Who is it talking about? Do you remember the story of the Israelites right after they came out of Egypt? God led them through an exile from Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. It's a famous story. They get out into the wilderness. God goes, or Moses goes to Mount Sinai to meet God, and God gives them the Ten Commandments, and he's leading them on their way to this land of promise. He promised their forefathers, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they would have this land, which we know today is where Israel is today, uh, on, the, on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. And he says, this is the land I'm going to give you promises this land to them. So they're, they're hot. They're tired. They've been trotting through the desert wilderness uh, right below uh, the, the promised land for, for a long time now. They're probably hot. They probably stink. Their feet probably are covered in blisters and calluses. And you get the picture. They're just kind of ready to finally get there. You know, like at the end of a long car ride when the car starts to smell kind of funny, <laughs> you know, and you got trash and food everywhere. You know how it is, um, at least for us with three young children, that's what it's like. So, you know, they're ready to get there. And so they get there and God leads them to send 12 spies into the land of promise. And so they, they do. They send out their 12 spies and they come back with their report. And this is what they say. Something like this. That land is fantastic. It's everything that we expected it to be. It's amazing. The fruit is enormous. And it, it was. They brought back these grapes that were like this bushel of grapes that was apparently just enormous. It flows with milk and honey. But the people there are also enormous. I think they're giants, actually. Unfortunately, it's, it's simply just too big of a con conquest for us to take. Can you imagine that kind of just disappointment in that moment? Like how you would really feel. Like if you were really anticipating something like that, you come back and you're like, yep, yeah, but it's too big for us. Sorry, we can't do it. As you can imagine, a frenzy began to break out <laughs> among the people of Israel. They started to not just hear this, this report, but they believed it themselves, and they started to believe that they couldn't do it. They had basically given up and chosen to deny God's promises to them and his faithfulness that he had chosen to show them over and over and over again. Well, not everyone shared that same report. In fact, Joshua and Caleb, two of the spies, came with a different report. And this comes from Numbers 14. <clears throat> Give me here. Numbers 14, 7b through 10a, it says... 
This is Caleb speaking. And Joshua. And they say, The land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He'll bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. It's a pretty bold statement. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. In verse 10, then, they all, then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. So, uh, that's it. Everyone can go home. <laughs> that's where we're going to stop today. No, I'm just kidding, of course. That, you know, it shows that even when they were being faithful and believing what God said, the people had embraced their disbelief so much in God's promises that they were willing to kill anyone else who basically disagreed with them. And that's a pretty dark place that they were in. So you have this moment, this clear moment, where God is giving hope and opportunity and rest to his people, and all they need to do is step into it. He provided it for them, and guess what? They say, no way! That's impossible! Look at how big those people are. We can't do that. No way. Impossible. And so, sadly, these Israelites, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years after that. God said, sorry, you basically forfeited what I gave you, and you can't have it now. And so they have to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years, literally until that generation of people who had chosen to disbelieve, until they died. And that's why it took 40 years. They had to wait for everyone to die. And their children rose up and took their place, and then they had conquest of the land and took the land that God had promised them. But one thing I want to point out is also in this verse from Hebrews that we're looking at in verse 2, it also talks about those who listened to God's promise with faith. And believed it. And that should give us hope, right? It's talking about Joshua and Caleb. They were the only ones from that previous generation that lived on and got to enjoy the promised land. They were the only ones. And that's including Moses. Moses also died. The guy who led them through this whole thing. Joshua and Caleb were the only ones. And why? Because they listened and believed and trusted in what God said. So what does this have to do with Hebrews? What does this have to do with Jesus being superior to the angels and to Moses? Why are we talking about the Israelites? Why are we talking about the promised land? Because as we'll soon see, we find ourselves today in a very similar position as they were. It might not feel like it, but we'll get there. Let's keep reading and you'll see what I mean. We're going to recap from the top of the chapter. Only those two verses. We're going to go back because I think the context will make a little more sense now as we read. It says... Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened, Joshua and Caleb. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. And I admit that that, that section can seem a little bit confusing. Simply put, this big thought, what it's saying, the author is, is, is saying that God's rest is still available for us to enter. 
Even though the Israelites and, and the people of the Exodus generation had the opportunity to enter that rest because they forfeited it, it's still open. There's still opportunity there. What, what do I mean by rest? Okay, so we've kind of touched on this a little bit, on rest. The rest in this passage is specifically talking about God's rest. Like the rest that he took when he finished creation. So he just made literally, well, everything that you can see and touch and feel. And even the things you can't see and touch and feel. He made all of it. And he just, he just completed that work and it says that he rested on that seventh day. Do you know how I would characterize that kind of rest? Completion. Peace. Balance. Literally, perfection. It's done. He said with everything he made, he said, it is good. Everything was as it was supposed to be. He rested. Everything was as it was supposed to be. It's the same kind of rest that we're talking about in this passage. The kind of rest that you can have when you're able to step into your true identity in Christ. The same kind that Adam and Eve were able to have in Christ. Because they knew who they were. They were able to just be. I'm a man. I'm a woman. Wow, that's awesome. I can just be. I know what God created me to do. You can rest. When your aspirations are to please God and to seek his glory by the way you live, you can rest. Because you're fulfilling your designed purpose. This is the rest we're talking about here in Hebrews. It's that seventh day of creation kind of rest. And so what I believe is that for the Israelites, in some ways, they got to enter that type of rest in, 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 in the promised land. But they were still under the law of Moses, which Jesus came to fulfill. The, the, what the law of Moses did is it pointed out how we couldn't attain that on our own. They couldn't fully enter that rest because Jesus needed to pay that for us. And so today, as we seek him, that's the rest that he can give us. But they forfeited it. When they chose to listen to their fears instead of God's promises, they forfeited it. They had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years instead, leaving the promise available for future generations, namely us. Let's read in verse 6 a little bit more here. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, talking about that rest, those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of their disobedience, talking about the Israelites. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Meaning that if the people Joshua led after Moses into the promised land, if they had received that rest, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest, that seventh day of creation type of rest, for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. So we find ourselves in a similar position to the Israelites on the border of the promised land. We're here with a magnificent opportunity before us, and it requires real faith. 
But we also find ourselves in a position similar to those original Hebrews that would have read the book of Hebrews. <coughs> Do you remember our context? The author of Hebrews had just talked about how Jesus is greater than Moses. That's a big deal to the Jewish people. That's kind of a huge statement, actually. Because in many ways, they view Moses as kind of the, the symbol of what it means to be the best Jew possible. He gave them the law that they follow. In many ways, Moses is this huge symbol in, in, in the Jewish culture, in the Hebrew culture. And the author of Hebrews is saying Jesus is greater than him. That's a big statement. This would have been a massive statement then, but it also is a massive statement now to the people who, who are Jewish today. This would have been a major, major theological hurdle for them to overcome. A hurdle that could prevent many of them from choosing to embrace who Jesus really was. And I believe this is why the author of Hebrews sandwiches this passage in here. Because he just made this huge statement. And he's saying, don't make the same mistakes that your forefathers made. Believe God's promise. He said there would be a Messiah. Well, he sent the Messiah. Look at who he is. He fulfilled everything God said. The promise is before you. You are on the cusp of it, like those people on the edge of the promised land. All you need to do is step in and take it and believe and trust God. Don't make the same mistake that they did. That's what he's saying. So we too are at the exact same crossroads, church. What's that massive hurdle that's preventing you from holding on completely to the message of Jesus Christ, being the Savior, not just of the world, but of you. What's preventing you from entering that seventh day of creation type of Sabbath rest, of knowing who you are in a way that you can only know through Christ? Listen to the words in the last part of this passage in verses 11 through 13. It says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God sees it all. God means what he says, and he always discerns and judges rightly. He can see to your very core, to the deepest, darkest places of you. And he can see what's holding you back from fully embracing the message of Jesus. And experiencing the rest that comes from being a son or daughter of God. You may be able to fool others. You might even be able to fool yourself. But there's no fooling God. And this leads us to reflect and look honestly at ourselves. I invite you to join me a little bit down the road less traveled this morning. Can we get real for a moment? This is a series about reaching higher and going deeper. 
What's on the screen? It's not on the screen, no. There, there we go. Yes. Reaching higher, growing deeper. This means checking our hearts and souls and asking the hard questions. Questions like, do I really believe all this stuff? How can it be true? And why don't I always see it? Why does God seem so silent when I pray? And why do I still feel so alone? It's a hard question. The truth is that we can't be afraid of these questions. And questions like it. In fact, I think this is the, that these kinds of questions are the exact reason that the author of Hebrews wrote Hebrews. Because people had questions about who Jesus was. How can it be true? How can he really be who he says he was? How can he be better than the angels or Moses? How can he be our high priest, which we'll talk about in future weeks? It was to address the hard questions that the Hebrew people especially were are having about Jesus. What are your questions? If God were to look into the depths of you, into the darkest places of your heart and soul, like he can, like we just talked about, what depths would he find? You see, I think this is a wildly important question. Because if these, it's these kinds of questions and these doubts and these fears, the ones that we're afraid to express, that over time they undermine our relationship with God and they make our faith kind of rocky sometimes. And sometimes for some people, if they don't address these questions, it can actually lead to walking away because they believe that God can't answer their questions. We need to address them and we need to confront them. You see, instead of addressing the problem of their doubts and their fears, the Israelites on the borders of Canaan, they let their fears and their doubts drive them and make the decisions for them. They completely forgot God's promises despite his repeated faithfulness and trustworthiness to them and provision for them. And we can do the same thing. I know I have done the same thing many times. The good news, God isn't afraid of your questions. He isn't afraid of your doubts or your fears. In fact, he tells us what to do with them. In verse 12, he says, stack them up against God's word. Put them against my words. And, and you might be thinking, like, okay, like, it's the Bible telling you to look at the Bible for answers about the Bible. But the reality is, these are not just words that someone wrote in a book. These are established words. What do I mean by established? I mean, it's not going anywhere. It's solid. It's firm. You can count on it. It's full of truth. It's able to provide comfort and shelter in the midst of your hardest moments. But make no mistake, you can't just pick this up, read it, and go, oh, that's why I didn't believe that. Okay, great. I'm glad I believe that now. It requires faith still to believe that God's word is established. And that's what it comes down to. It's still faith. That is required of us. Because even though it's established and firm, it's like me going down that quarter pipe. Sometimes it's hard to grab on and believe it, that it's true. Especially from our very human perspective. 
To trust in his word, to trust his promises, it requires faith. And what do I mean by faith exactly? It, it's not just this intellectual decision, basically. It's not this choice that you make by weighing what is the most logical. Quite honestly, living by faith means doing things that seem completely illogical many times. <laughs> when you consider it from a human perspective, especially. But faith is what can give us baffling peace in the midst of immense turmoil. Faith can give you confidence when you're walking into that job interview and you feel like the least likely candidate, but you believe that God might do something here. Faith can give you patience for that thing that your heart has been longing for. And when you've been waiting for far too long, faith can give you patience. Faith can give you reason in difficult life situations to joyfully look forward beyond your present reality to the promise of eternity with God in heaven. See, that's our promised land. It's not just a place. It's relationship with God forever in heaven for eternity. And it's all because faith is something that although you may not see it with your earthly eyes, you can see it with your spiritual eyes. In your heart, you can see that it is established, God's word, that it is true. You can, you can just sense it. You can just feel it, but it's deeper than a feeling. It's a deep knowing that it is true, that it is established, firm, solid, dependable. When you're in the darkest night of your soul, I sure hope you reach out and grab your Bible and find Verses in your dark place, like John 8, 12, that says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that you can grab onto that with faith and believe, I'm in a dark place, but I have the light of life. When your strength fails and you're crippling, I hope you reach out and grab your Bible and find verses like 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where God tells Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. And you can go, God, I'm so weak right now, but Lord, thank you that your power is made perfect in my weakness. You see what I'm saying? There's something firm and established. You can stand on that, but it still requires faith. Thank God we only need faith as a mustard seed. Just reading them, hearing them, and casually Agreeing with them isn't enough. The ancient Israelites at the borders of Canaan, they were the first to hear God's promises on these things. And yet, they missed out on their benefits because they did not grab hold of them with faith. If you and I can be consistent about this, about turning to God's word first in the most important moments, what will begin to happen is his word will actually begin to sink in into us. We'll have the mind of Christ, which gives us this, this, this discernment and this understanding in the darkest moments where other people would be freaking out. You can go, wait a minute. God can give me peace that surpasses all understanding. And you can stand on it. And if you choose, God, I'm going to believe that. Guess what? You will find peace that surpasses your own understanding. 
You begin to live a life with victory and purpose, especially rest. You begin to live a life of rest because you know who you are. You know whose you are. You know who's behind you, and you know who's with you. You can have that seventh day of creation type of rest, real rest. Why? Because you've allowed the word of God, his spoken word, to go inside you and tell you who you are and whose you are. And you can rest in that. So, what can you do today? That's a good question. How will you respond? I'll give you three things. One is to address your doubts, fears, and questions. Address them. Say them out loud. Put them out in the open. Recognize them. Because sometimes we can be afraid to even verbalize them, right? Because it's almost, we get this feeling like, if I say it, then it'll be true. <laughs> but the reality is it's already true. It's already there. That question is already in your heart. And if you don't say anything about it, if you don't put it out in the open and deal with it, it's like a sinkhole for your faith and for your life. It's like a sinkhole. You don't even see it wearing away underneath, and all of a sudden there's this massive cave-in. So put them out in the open. And what you will reap is a richer, deeper walk with Christ as you wrestle over the hard stuff. That's how you go deeper. And you do have a community of fellow followers of Jesus to wrestle with, by the way. You can wrestle on these things together. So address your doubts, fears, and questions about being a Christian, following Christ, or anything like that. Two, get in the habit of looking to the Bible as your first informant for approaching difficult questions and issues. The first informant, the first place you go. Because what can happen is sometimes if we have a doubt or something like that, instead of going to our primary source, we go to other sources. We go to social media. We go to liberal media that's, that's coming from, from the, some of the darkest places of the world sometimes. Just going to be honest with you. From people that are already clear skeptics of Christianity. It's not that we cut those sources out because sometimes they can give us perspective and help us see how, you know, how other people see but that should not be our primary source of information, and that shouldn't be the way that we make these decisions, the way that we wrestle over these things. They should inform us of something, but they should not have the greatest weight. Instead, I would challenge you to look for yourself at what the Bible says. To read it yourself. Say, this is a hard issue. It seems like Man, like God, like this doesn't, this is incompatible. I don't even understand how this works. Google is awesome with these things. Just Google verses about blah, 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 and fill in the blank. And you will find tons of verses about these things. And do more than just read the individual verse because the context, again, is king with these things. So if you find a verse and you go, wow, that's interesting, what's the context? Read it, and it may answer your question. You can't just pull out one verse. That's how people get confused about these things. But go to the Bible first. Are there challenging things in Scripture that you'll need to wrestle over in order to reconcile? Absolutely. And we may disagree on things sometimes, too. But at the end of the day, this is where faith must intersect again. 
If you believe in your spirit that God is who he says he is, then his word, what he says, should really matter a lot to you. And in fact, it should be the most important thing to you in what he says about something. So go to your Bible first. Keep wrestling. Oh, and don't stop wrestling either. Don't stop wrestling because it gets hard because that just creates uh, a skeptical faith that's not actually thoroughly thought out, honestly. Keep wrestling. Remember, God's not afraid of it. Talk with your pastors. Read your Bible. Seek understanding. And three, finally, is rest in the truth. This wrestling is not without purpose. When the wrestling is done, you can rest in knowing that what you believe is solid. That God's word is true. Take God on his promises. If he says something, you're like, okay, God, I'm not sure if I believe that, but I'm going to try it. That's that mustard seed faith. That's saying, you know what, God? You say this, and I'm just going to see if it's true. Guess what? If you take that step out and you do that, you'll find that it is. And that's a bold statement for me to say, because there's a lot of huge promises in here, but I believe all of them. Because I believe God's word, I believe him, and I believe his character. The wrestling is not without purpose. Another part of wrestling, and we kind of touched on it in this passage, is taking a real day off sometimes. Taking a Sabbath, a real Sabbath. A day off. You know, I don't know about you, but I think it's pretty cool that God doesn't just want us to have a day off and to have that rest, but he actually commands it. That's one of the Ten Commandments is remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. He tells us to do that because he knows how he made us. We need rest. And we need real rest. Like an off-limits from work day of rest, you know. I look forward to mine. You just do something that recharges you. And you celebrate Jesus. And he'll refresh your spirit and your body. And it's, it's just amazing. So make sure that you do that. So rest with an actual Sabbath and rest in the truth. I hope this encourages you this morning. When you can rest in the truth of Scripture and in the truth of God's promises, you can begin living out of the life that God has for you. You can continue to go deeper and to reach higher. You can choose to make statements of faith like that of Joshua and Caleb, just you know in your heart that God's word is true. You can walk into that promised land with confidence, knowing that God is with you. And you can lean forward into the quarter pipes, knowing that God is with you. And he won't let you fall. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're, we're grateful for your provisions and for your faithfulness, Lord, that we can trust your word. I pray for each and every soul in this room today that they grapple with this and, God, that they wrestle with this. And, God, at the end of the day, I pray that their wrestling would not be in vain, but, God, they would be able to find rest in you and trust your word and have faith in you, Jesus. As we move to remember your sacrifice on the cross and the faithfulness that that represented, I pray that our hearts would be strengthened and that you would work through us in Jesus' name.
Amen.